Okay, folks, good evening. Welcome to the mine tonight. We are so glad to have you. All right. First Peter chapter 2, beginning at verse 4 tonight. First Peter chapter 2, beginning at verse 4. Um, the passage that we're going to look at tonight, as I read it and I read it and I read it and I read it, I, something kept coming back, and it really was this whole concept that in Christianity, we, we use the term disciple or discipleship or whatever. And that coming, kept coming back to me because as I read and studied this passage, I realized that everything that Peter is talking to us about in this passage really goes back to different aspects of discipleship. And to simplify it in my mind, how I like to sort of remember it is this way. There is the call of discipleship. And then there are two primary goals of discipleship, of being a disciple of Jesus Christ. The call of discipleship is to be with Jesus Christ, to commune with Him, to just spend time with Him. In the Gospel of Mark, chapter 3, verse 14, when Jesus called His first disciples, the Bible says in Mark 3, 14, He called them to be with Him. And more than just teaching them, He wanted these men to just spend time with Him. To not just spend time with him in those formal times, but in the informal times. Uh, in the day, at night, whenever, just to soak up as much as they could uh, for as long as they could. And that's part of being a disciple. So that's why I reject, personally, someone who, who says that discipleship is simply a teaching component. No, it's much more than that. It's involving our lives together with other people. And that's what Jesus did. He called his disciples to be with him. In fact, this is emphasized in 1 Corinthians 1.19 when Paul says to the Corinthians that God the Father has called us into the fellowship of his Son, Jesus Christ. That's one of the primary goals, that God the Father has called us into fellowship with his Son, Jesus Christ. So God wants us to spend time with Jesus. God wants us to commune with Jesus. God wants us to fellowship with Jesus. God wants us to have that intimate communion and communication with Jesus Christ. That, that's one of the essences of being a disciple of His. Spending time with Jesus throughout the week and throughout the day. And obviously, I hope Tuesday night is a, is a representation of that. And I hope throughout the week that uh, you are spending time with Jesus. That is the call of discipleship. But then there are two goals. One goal is to be like Jesus. That as we spend time with Jesus, we become more like Jesus. Luke chapter 6 verse 40 says, A disciple is not above his teacher, but everyone when they are fully trained will be like their teacher. And then in the book of Romans chapter 8 verse 29, the goal of salvation according to the Bible is that we are conforming ourselves to the image of Jesus Christ. So that the more time we spend with Jesus... The goal is the more we will look like Jesus in the ways in which we can look like Jesus. And I just simply say it this way, and I've said it before, so I'm not going to spend a lot of time on it. But again, we've got to differentiate when I say that between what we call the incommunicable attributes of God and the communicable attributes. Incommunicable attributes are those things of God which he can share with no one else because that's what makes him God and makes him separate from everything else in creation. So that when we say we are becoming like Jesus Christ, it doesn't mean we are becoming almighty, because only God is almighty. It doesn't mean that we become omniscient, uh, because only God is omniscient. It doesn't mean that we become omnipresent, meaning we're everywhere all at once, because we can't do that. We cannot share those attributes of God. They are the incommunicable attributes that only God himself shares. But the communicable attributes we can share. Where are they found? Well, passages like Galatians 5, 22 and 23, the fruit of the Spirit. We are to become loving like God. We are to become joyful like God. We are to become patient like God, forgiving like God, merciful like God. Those are the attributes of God which He can share with us as human beings and in which we can grow to be more and more like Him. So, the call of discipleship is to be with Him. The goal of discipleship, A, is to begin to look like Him. And again, God doesn't expect perfection on this side of heaven. 
But all he's looking for is progress. And that's why I share that my goal in my life is to look a little bit more like Jesus Christ today than I did yesterday. This week than I did last week. This month than I did last month. It is making progress towards the goal. As Paul would say in the book of Philippians, I have not arrived yet, but I am going to continue through the rest of my life, Philippians 3, 10, 11, and 12, to press towards the mark for the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. And that mark is to become like Jesus Christ. And then the other goal of being a disciple is to make disciples. So the more that I spend time with Jesus, hopefully the more I begin to look like Jesus in the way that I can look more like Jesus. And in that way, hopefully I will draw people to Jesus. That's why Jesus, when he called his disciples, he says, follow me and I will what? Make you fishers of men. Because one of the goals is not just being with me and beginning to look like me and act like me and have the attitude that I have, but to begin to draw people to me. That's why at the very end of the Gospel of Matthew, what we call the Great Commission, after Jesus had been raised from the dead by the power of God, He gathers His disciples. And before He ascends to heaven, He says, All authority has been given to Me. Now I want you, as you go, to make disciples of all nations. It is a command. It's not a suggestion. God didn't say, now if you Christians get her and you really feel like making disciples, yeah, but no. It's a command. If we are disobedient to that command, then we're being disobedient. And uh, Jesus said, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. So we want to obey the commandments of God. And so that whole thing of discipleship that we can maybe get confused about and it can get convoluted at times, to me, can be reduced very simply to those three things. The call of discipleship is to be with Him. The goals of discipleship is to become like Him as we spend time with Him and then begin to make disciples. And so, again, the reason I started out with all of this tonight, because as we dive into this passage tonight, you're going to see that everything that Peter says is going to begin to relate back to one of those three areas. Either spending time with Him, becoming like Him, or making an impact for Him in the world in which live through making disciples. Alright? With that said then, let's go to 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 4. And here you see that first phrase which speaks about spending time with Him. Because this is not a call to initial salvation. This is a statement which is saying that as you now have known Him, you now hopefully will continue to come to Him This living stone. And that first phrase in verse 4, so as you come to Him, is speaking about a continual, habitual approach in seeking communion with your Lord and with your Savior. It's about going to Him and just being with Him as much as you possibly can. It's the picture of Mary, who Mary and Martha, Martha's, you know, in the kitchen doing her thing, but there's Mary sitting at the feet of Jesus, just soaking up Jesus for a while. Uh, And Jesus said that that was the one thing that was needed right there. Uh, It's spending time with Jesus. I mean, folks, that's what it is in my life. That's what it needs to be in all of our lives. We need to spend time at the feet of the Savior. And so Peter is saying, listen, folks, if we're ever going to make an impact in the world in which we live, if we're ever going to navigate the persecution and the suffering and the trials that that we're going through right now, if we're ever going to become like Him, we've got to come to Him. And not just come to Him once a week, not just come to Him once a month, but come to Him continually, habitually, approaching Him and seeking that communion with Him and just spending time with Jesus, the living stone. Very strange name for Jesus. But I think it speaks of His uniqueness. A stone's really not living, right? But it's talking about the fact that he is a living stone. He's alive. He's the living, risen Savior. And yet, in a sense, in his character, he is a stone. He is the rock of the Old Testament. He's the one that can provide stability and security in my life. He is the rock that is higher than I, that I can look to. And many times throughout the Old Testament in the Psalms, David and other psalmists would write about looking to the hills and looking to the mountains for my help. 
Where does my help come from? David said, I am looking up to the mountains. Because in those days, the mountains were a a picture of stability and of strength, just like they are even in our day. And so look up. Look to Jesus. He is our living stone. But then notice what Peter said. But he didn't pass man's test. He was rejected by men, but he was chosen and priceless in God's sight. And I, I think that was an encouragement to these folks, again, who were suffering persecution because, in a sense, they were, they were suffering rejection. They were suffering rejection because of their relationship with Jesus Christ and because they were a Christian and not ashamed to tell the Roman Empire that they were a Christian, a follower of Jesus Christ. Many people in the Roman Empire rejected them. But I think God is here even saying through Peter, you know, you're going to have times in your life where men reject you too. But don't forget that you are chosen and priceless to God. And we're going to get into more of that a little bit later on. You are chosen. Man may reject you. God will never reject you. God is ready to wrap his arms around you. And just like a loving father, anytime we want to come into his lap in a sense and have some time with our heavenly father, he is right there to wrap his arms of love around us because we are chosen and we are priceless in his sight, just like his son Jesus Christ was. But don't forget, Jesus didn't pass man's test. And you and I throughout our lives may not pass man's tests, but that's not what life's about. Don't let Other people define who and what you are and what you become. Let God alone define your life. And that was true of Jesus Christ. Now notice this, verse 5. And you yourselves as living stones are built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood and to offer up spiritual sacrifices that are acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Living stones. Isn't it cool that then as we get closer to Christ and come to Him and and seek out time with Him, that we become more and more identified with Him? He's the living stone. Yeah, but then Peter said, oh, but, oh, but, but you're living stones too. And the more time we spend with the living stone, the more we're going to be those living stones as well. Unique, precious, valuable able to make an impact and able to even provide others with that promise of life and that stability and the security and that hope and joy that they're looking for. He's also saying in verse 5 that it's very important that we remember that God wants to build us into the fabric of the church. Notice he says, you are living stones and you are being built up as a spiritual house. Simply said, and this is a good illustration for Cornerstone right now with all the building going on or, or all the tearing down. Or By the way, next week when you come in, the carpets will be nice, the walls will be painted, it'll look like a brand new room. Um, one brick does not a building make. But you begin to put bricks together and it can build a beautiful, beautiful building. And that's what he's saying. You see, God doesn't intend for any Christian to be that lonely brick that just sits there. He expects us to be part of something much bigger than ourselves, and He wants us to allow God to build us into the fabric of the church so that the church, as we all come together as those bricks, can be built up into a spiritual house that really makes an impact for God. Because if one can make an impact for God, what can a hundred bricks do for God? What can a hundred living stones working together do for God? What kind of lighthouse can that be and powerhouse in the community? So he's saying we need to be willing to allow God to take our brick, our life, our living stone and combine it and knit it together with other living stones so that we can be built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood. You'll notice there that God says that part of that means that we are not passive spectators in this whole thing called church, but we are to be active participants. And that's why the goal of any good church is to get as many people who are coming involved in the church. Because the church will only be as strong 
as everybody who brings their gifts and their abilities and their talents and what they can offer the church to the church. Let me just say it this way. I would be better off if I had your gifts and abilities and the things that you could bring to the table to rub off on me. I will not be as well-rounded of a Christian if other Christians just say, "Ah, I'm not getting involved. I'll miss out. Because you could add something to my Christian life that no other Christian could because you are unique. And that's why we encourage people to volunteer to get involved in ministry. It's not to be selfish and say, oh, we've got a lot of work to do and we need your help. That's certainly part of it. But part of it also is recognizing this principle. That all of us need each other and all of us can contribute to the whole and all of us can learn and grow from each other as we all come together and allow God to knit our hearts together. That's why I love that verse in Colossians where Paul tells the Colossians in Colossians 3.2 that God, as he's praying for the Colossian Christians, that God may knit your hearts together in Jesus Christ. It's a beautiful picture of like how God just wants to sort of web us and weave us all together, that our hearts may be knit together, and that he might build each of us as living stones into the very fabric of the church to be, notice, a holy priesthood. We talked a little bit about this, and we're going to talk a lot more about this. This concept of priesthood comes back up again in verse 9 of chapter 2. Do you realize that you are a priest? You are a priest. That's what the Bible teaches. The word priest in the Latin just means this. It means bridge builder. That's what the word pontifex in Latin means. A bridge builder. And again, what God is saying in this passage is that as I come to Jesus Christ, and as I spend time with Him, and as I begin to look like Him, God can use me as a bridge builder, as a priest, from men to God. And as they look at my life, and as they observe me, and as I talk to them, and as I live out Christ to them, God can use my life to be a priest, a bridge builder, from them to God. Now, there's only one mediator between God and men, and that, according to Paul, 1 Timothy 2.8, is the man, Christ Jesus. So we cannot get to God apart from Jesus Christ, but God does use Christians then to build that bridge to Christ. So that then, once they get to Christ, then they can get to God. He's using us. And that's why he calls us a holy priesthood, because in order to do that, guess what? We've got to be different. That's what really the word holy means. We've got to be distinct. We can't be like everybody else in the world because, again, as I shared, they'll look at us and say, what's the difference between you and me? If you're saying your God has made such a big difference in your life, I don't see it. So as we allow God to shape us and to make us like Jesus Christ, then people begin to see, wow, there's something different about you. You've got a hope that I don't have. You've got a joy that I don't have. You've got a peace that I don't have. Where does that come from? And Peter would say later on, Be ready to give them an answer when they ask you that question. Well, that joy, that peace, that hope, that comes from my personal relationship with Jesus Christ, and you can have one too. There's being a bridge builder, and that's what God is calling us to. Another way to say it is to be able to make disciples. I'm going to stop here in just a moment. And then notice, not only to be a priest, but to offer up spiritual sacrifices that are acceptable to God through Jesus Christ which implies that some sacrifices aren't acceptable to God. Which means that we have to also sometimes check even our motives for what we do. Because we may be doing the right thing, but we may be doing it for the wrong reason. An acceptable sacrifice is not just doing the right thing, but doing it for the right reason. Having the right motive behind it. And like the priests in the Old Testament, who offered up sacrifices, but they were animal sacrifices... Obviously, we don't need to offer up any animal blood sacrifices anymore because the writer of Hebrews says that Jesus Christ has shed his blood once and for all, for all time. He is the sufficient offering for sin. There needs to be no more sacrifice for sin, but I still, as a New Testament priest, bridge builder, can offer up spiritual sacrifices. What are they? Well, Hebrews chapter 13, verse 15. Why don't you turn there tonight? This is probably one of my favorite verses. Hebrews chapter 13, verse Verse 15. Wow, it's 10 after 7 already? 
It's yapping away, isn't it? Yeah. In Hebrews chapter 13, verse 15, the writer of Hebrews says that through Jesus Christ, through Him, we may offer the sacrifice of praise to God continually. That is the fruit of our lips, giving thanks to His name. That's a spiritual sacrifice. And then he goes on in verse 16 to say, and oh, oh, by the way, and to do good and to share what you have, don't forget to do that, for with such sacrifices, God is very well pleased. Those are pleasing sacrifices. Doing good, sharing what we have with others. But I want to go back to this, the very first one. Offering the sacrifice of praise to God continually, The fruit of our lips giving thanks. One of the great ways that we can be a bridge builder and that we can make an impact for God in this world is is allowing God to so inhabit our being each day that we are just filled with praises for God throughout the day. And let me say this. We're not always going to feel like praising God. And that's why the Bible says in Hebrews 13, 15, and just... Please bear with me. I'm going to be preaching here for the next couple of minutes. That's why the Bible says in Hebrews 13, 15 that it's got to be at times the sacrifice of praise. It's not always going to be convenient. I'm not always going to feel like praising God. But I've got to recognize that no matter what my circumstances are, and we know what these folks in 1 Peter's circumstances were, they were under tremendous persecution by the Roman Emperor Nero and the Roman Empire at this time. And they were going through tremendously difficult times. But Peter is saying, as you come to your living stone, and as you spend time with him, and as he begins to to chisel out that, that rock out of that that mountain of sin, and then cement it by grace into Him, the living stone, and begin to make something out of our life. And then as we begin through that process to look more and more like Jesus Christ, He can use our life to truly make an impact in the world in which we live. And one of the best ways is as a New Testament priest to begin to offer sacrifices to God. And one of the primary ones is the sacrifice of praise. So that... Someday, I may have a bad day at work, but I need to praise God anyway because He's worthy of my praise. The circumstances may not be good, but God is always worthy of my praise. And I need to choose to praise Him even though the day at work may be bad. Or maybe I go to the doctor and I get a bad doctor's report, but I can choose to offer the sacrifice of praise and know that God is worthy of praise regardless of the bad doctor's report. Or I can suffer a loss of some kind, even. Or go through a tragedy. But I can choose to offer the sacrifice of praise because God is worthy of praise at all times. That's why Job, in the book of Job, after losing everything, said, The Lord gave, the Lord takes away, but blessed be the name of the Lord. Job chapter 1 verse 15. God is always worthy of our praise no matter what we're going through in our circumstances of life. And sometimes then that that takes the sacrifice of praise. I, I don't always feel like praising God. But I need to choose to praise Him because it is a spiritual sacrifice that is well-pleasing to God and will certainly make even a greater impact. Because let's face it, folks, when things are going good in our life, uh, folks are going to look and go, oh, things are going pretty good. But it's when things may turn a little south in our life that they're going to say, okay, you're saying your God really makes a difference? Let me see it when things are bad. And that's when the testimony... That's when the discipleship, that's when the impact can be very, very much greater at those times. I can remember, as a young pastor, telling people about the hope that we have in Jesus Christ and His grace and, and how you know, He can carry us through the roughest times. And I'll never forget how keenly God sort of etched this into my mind when my father died. And I was up there preaching his funeral and navigating that whole time when my father died. How many people were looking at me saying, okay, Pastor Jeff, that was good for you and you were preaching that message to us, but I want to see if it's real in your life and if you're going to live it now, okay? And and I was 
very keenly aware how many eyes and how many people were watching me during that time because it's one thing to say it, it's another thing to live it, especially when those times in our life are tough. But those are the times when people are really watching to see, is your God and is your relationship with God real? And those are the times where, not in our own strength, obviously, but only in the strength of God, as we come to Him and say, God, I, I need you, the living stone, can God raise us up and really allow our lives to speak very clearly about all that He is to other people? And you see that here in the book of First Peter and then also then in Hebrews chapter 13, verse 15. All right. I'm stopping. <laughs> Comments, questions, snide remarks. <laughs> yes, Laura. Yes. Um, I know one part of sacrifice is to praise also giving, sharing with others. Um, do you think it matters whether you give to a Christian organization or a non believer in I'll just answer that with the scripture verse. <laughs> Uh, in Galatians, I think it's chapter 6, verse 10, it says, As we have opportunity to do good, let's do it, especially to those of the household of faith. So I think that it's okay to do good to any and everybody, but I think especially when we have an opportunity to do good to another believer, that God especially wants us to do that. Because remember, again, that one of the primary ways we impact those who don't know Christ is by the love that we show each other. John 13, 35. Jesus said, By this kind of love that you have for each other, all those outside the church will know that you are my disciples. So there is that keen awareness that, that those outside the church are watching those inside the church and how they treat each other. And I think that's really huge. I would just say... As you have opportunity, do it as God gives you the opportunity, whether they're part of the church or not part of the church. Just like when, when Jesus was trying to get his followers to say, uh, you know, well, who is my neighbor? Remember? And he went into the story of the Good Samaritan. He says, your neighbor is anybody that God puts in front of you that has a need that you can meet. He says, if, if, you, if, if you see somebody who has a need and you have the resources to meet that need, then meet it. If you don't have the resources, then don't feel obligated to do that. But if God places somebody in our life, like that guy that was beat up and left for dead on the side of the road and was robbed, and this Samaritan comes by because the really religious people already came by and they just passed by, the Levi and the, the Levite and the priest and whatever, they just passed by because they didn't want to get their hands dirty, you know, type of thing. And then this Samaritan comes by and takes the guy and binds up his wounds and throws him on his horse and takes him to the nearest town and gets medical help and puts him up in the hospital for a couple days and says, I'll pay for his hospital bill. Jesus says, that's, that's what being a neighbor is all about. That's what showing compassion is all about. If you see the need out there and you have a resource to meet that, now obviously, again, this is where they qualify that. There's more need out there than what you and I can meet individually. And that's why God doesn't expect you and I to meet all the needs all over the world, okay? But as God brings different people periodically throughout our life into our life, there may be a reason for that. And then certainly it goes back to the church too, that as we come together individually and build our bricks into the fabric of the church, we can do much more collectively as a church body than we ever could individually, so we can make more of a dent in the needs out there if we come together and work at it together. Yeah. All right. Good stuff. Yes? I certainly think there's opportunity daily to do good. Yeah, I definitely do. I mean, just being kind to people. You know, the Bible says that part of being Christ-like is just being kind. And I think Jesus, as He just, you know, maybe He didn't heal somebody that day. You know, maybe He didn't make somebody uh, who could see that was blind and, you know, lame, walk that was lame or whatever. 
healed somebody from the dead. But he was kind to people every day. And he talked to people that no one else would were willing to talk to. And his kindness spoke volumes. And the Bible says, be kind to each other. And I think our kindness, I mean, I think again sometimes, and I'm saying this to myself, I'm not saying this to you. I think sometimes I look for these big things that I need to do to make an impact. And a lot of times it's those small things, those things that we discount. And God says, there's no small things. You know, if you give a cup of water to somebody who needs it, that's huge. And I won't forget that. In fact, now you got me on a roll. I got to have you turn to a scripture. Oh, man. Look at Hebrews chapter 6, verse 10. Here's a great encouragement for you. All right. Here's a great encouraging verse for you. You probably noticed by now how much Hebrews is such a favorite book of mine, don't you? Yeah, you know that. Hebrews chapter 6, verse 10. Here you go. Here's one you ought to write down, mark in your Bible, write on a post-it and stick it in your car as you ride around. God, for God is not unjust so as to forget your work and the love you have demonstrated for His name and having served and continuing to serve the saints. See, that verse says God, hey, man might forget. Man might not ever notice what you did. Man might not appreciate what you did, but everything that you do in God's name, God will never forget it. And God will reward you and God will bless you. And as we talked about a couple weeks ago, God will lay, be laying up an eternal inheritance because of those things. Because God wants to reward His children. And though God rewards us and blesses us down here on this earth, the big rewards and blessings are waiting. Why? Because God wants to, us to enjoy the best forever. If God gave us His best down here, then we couldn't take it with us. And we'd be going, bye, I, I, I can't take it with me. So God says, hey, I'll bless you down here. I'll give you good things down here, but I'm going to reserve the best for up there so that you can enjoy it forever and ever and ever and millions and millions of years down the road, you'll still be able to enjoy it. Why would I give you my best here on earth and then you're going to have to be separated from it for all of eternity? I'm going to reserve my best reward and my best blessings and that's why Jesus said, so lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven instead of laying up treasures here on the earth. All right, sorry. You just got me going on these different verses popping in and out of my head. Yes, Mike. I'm always struggling with the proper way to prayer to pray. And you know, you were talking about the importance of our fellowship with Jesus. And whenever I hear somebody else pray or whenever I pray, I'm always praying to God the Father in Jesus' name. And not really praying to Jesus. And I'm thinking to myself, should I be as part of my fellowship with Jesus praying to him? Or yeah, I'm not really sure. I, well, I'll answer it this way, and it, I know some of you won't like this answer. Um, I, I'm really not that hung up on the form of it. I mean, I know that when Jesus taught us that prayer, he started out with our Father, which art in heaven. Um, but we also have to remember that God not only is three distinct, three distinct persons, but he's also one and I, I personally don't think that it's, it's that big of a deal to pray to God the Father, God the Son, or God the Holy Spirit, as long as we keep one thing in mind. And that is, this is the important thing, that the only reason we have access to pray to God is through the blood of Jesus Christ. It is because of our personal relationship to Christ that we can even come into His presence. Romans chapter 5, verse 1. Because of the righteousness we have now in Christ, we have access, Paul says, Romans 5, 1, into His presence. So keeping that in mind to me is huge because, again, we don't take that prayer lightly. We know that we cannot come into the very presence of God on our own merit. We are coming upon the merit of Jesus Christ. And it is a privilege that Jesus Christ has given us that he bore on the cross so that we could come in. But let's face it, the Bible even teaches in that same book of Romans that there are times where we don't even know what we should be praying for. That we don't even have words to express what we're feeling. And the Bible then says that the Holy Spirit takes those groanings and those, yeah, and takes them and <laughs> takes them to God and say, here's just, yeah. 
It's in there. It's in Romans. I'm telling you. Read Romans chapter 8. It's there. Because he says there's times where, and I've been there, and I'm sure you've been there, if you've been a Christian any length of time, where there are times in your life where you really don't know how to pray, you don't know what to pray, you don't even know what to say, and and there's no words that you can come up with in the human language to even express how you're feeling. Maybe you're so deeply hurt, maybe you're so deeply grieved, maybe you're so deeply hurting, maybe you're just... You're so deeply overwhelmed. I don't know what you're going through, but there's not, you don't even know what the words are that you would use to talk to God about it. Cool thing is, God says, you don't need words at that time. Because as God, I know that I can take what you're feeling in your heart and I can, I can deal with it. I, I can interpret it. I, I know what you're going through. The Holy Spirit's ministry then is to do that. So, again, I, I don't think we need to be so necessarily cut and dried about it. I think that God will answer, you know, no matter who we address. But I think as long as we keep why we have, you know, how we get there, I think that's important. Because that reminds us of the privilege of prayer uh, that we have as Christians. Good stuff. All right, let's go on. Notice in First Peter. And this is a cool couple verses for those of us who are part of Cornerstone, right? Because in verse 6, he says, and listen, I am laying in Zion a stone, a chosen and priceless cornerstone. And whoever believes in him will never be put to shame. So you who believe see his value. But for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and also a stumbling stone and a rock to trip over because they stumble, because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. A couple things. The importance of the cornerstone. The cornerstone is not only the stone that provides strength and stability to the entire structure. It's not only the foundation stone that sort of holds all the other. It's also the stone upon which every other stone orients itself. And that's the way I like to look at the cornerstone. That the cornerstone is Jesus Christ. And that every then living stone that is built into the fabric of the church must orient themselves to the cornerstone and find their place in the church through orienting themselves, first of all, to the living stone, the, the living stone or the cornerstone, Jesus Christ. I don't compare myself to other living stones, which again, boy, we... You know, we can always get off in comparing ourselves with, you know, and, you know, well, God, I don't have to go to church for at least three months because I know this other Christian, they haven't been to church for two months or something. Yeah. <laughs> I'm just comparing myself to somebody. Yeah. And, and all of us can find people that we can compare ourselves to other so-called Christians that aren't, you know, maybe as committed as we are. And we can always probably find some that are more committed. I mean, that's why the Bible says, don't, com- don't, com- don't orient yourself in your life or in the church to any other stone except the cornerstone. Keep your eyes just focused on the cornerstone. Orient yourself to Him and everything else will take care of itself, you see. Too often, though, we get our eyes off of the cornerstone and we're not oriented to the cornerstone. We're trying to orient ourselves to other stones, <laughs> And that's when we can get into trouble because the cornerstone is the one in which all other stones in the building should take its cue, if you will, from the cornerstone. And that should be true at Cornerstone Christian Fellowship. That as we come as living stones, that we are orienting ourselves into the fabric of this church through the cornerstone, finding our place and our place of ministry and service, not based upon how we orient to other people. And then you also see here a tremendously sharp contrast between those who believe and those who do not. He says, so you who believe see his value. But for those who don't believe, they're stumbling over Christ. And why are they stumbling? Because notice verse 8, they're disobeying. And it all goes together. You see, the word in the original language literally is non-persuasible. Meaning that no matter what God does and no matter what anybody else says or does, they are not going to be persuaded that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. And therefore, because they are not able to be persuaded, because their heart is so hardened, they continue to stumble over Christ, and they continue to disobey the Lord. 
because they're not willing to listen. And that's really what it is. And that's why, again, when we go out trying to make disciples, I'm looking for people that are willing to listen. I'm not going to try to cram Jesus Christ down somebody's throat who's not interested in hearing about Jesus Christ. But there are plenty of people out there today who are interested in talking about Jesus Christ and listening to the gospel. And so I will spend my time sharing the gospel and Jesus Christ with them because there are plenty of people who want to hear. And then I love this, verse 9. But you, again, notice that contrast. But you, big contrast. Here are these people who cannot be persuaded about Jesus Christ. But you, here's what you are. And it's very cool in this passage, again, that he's trying to encourage these Christians going through tremendously hard times, that it's not about what we are in this life, it's about whose we are. Please get that. It's not about what we are, it's about whose we are. Because in our culture, even in America, it's all about, you know, what position I have in the community and what job I have and, and, and what status I have and this and that. And again, comparing ourselves with other people and all of this. And God is saying, no, 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 it's about none of that. It's just about knowing me. And if you know me in a personal way, guess what then? You are a chosen race. God chose us. He chose us. John said it this way in 1 John. We love Him because He first loved us. God initiated this relationship with me. I didn't initiate it with Him. He chose me. He, he pursued me. I didn't pursue him. That's why Paul says in the book of Romans, even while we were enemies of God, meaning we could care less, that Jesus died on the cross for us. That God had us on his mind way before we had him on his mind. He chose us. This means something to me because as a boy in elementary school, and yes, I'm still scarred by my elementary school. <laughs> Just want you to know that. I'm not going to counseling yet for this, but... I always wanted, always wanted, and some of you can probably identify with me, I always wanted as a boy to be the first person picked for kickball or softball. I wanted to be chosen. I wanted somebody else to think, yeah, I, I want you on my team. I want, it feels good to be chosen. And I'd always stand up there next to the fence and all these other people would, I'm not bitter about this. <laughs> And all these other people would be chosen before me. And then finally, towards the end, you know, I was one of the last five or six. And I'd be chosen. And then one day, I grew like six inches in one year. In fact, some of you don't believe this, but my wife can verify this. In, foot, in high school, by the time I was a junior and senior, I was not only 6'4", which is the height I am now, but I weighed 315, 20 pounds and was a tackle on the football team. Um... I'm about half the person I used to be. <laughs> um, but um, I kicked a ball over the fence and hit a kickball home run one day. And it was the best day of my life because that next day, guess what? I was like one of the first ones chosen. <laughs> How good that felt to be chosen. Well, God chose you. I mean, think you know, we think it's special when another human being chooses us, when, when they choose to be our friend or our spouse or, or have some relation. We think that's cool when we're chosen for a team in elementary school or whatever. People want us to be on their team. We think that's cool. The God of the universe, folks, has chosen you. That ought to make you feel special. That ought to see the value in you. He, chose, he wanted you to be part of His family. He wanted you to, to be part of His eternity. He wanted to have a personal love relationship with you. He chose you. You're chosen by God. And then, a royal priesthood. Not, not just a priesthood. You are royalty to God. You see, that's why I try to get Christians to hold their head up high when they go through this life. Because folks, according to the Word of God, you and I are royalty. All men in here, you are princes of God, and women, you are princesses of God. You are royalty. And you and I need to carry ourselves that way. Because that's the way God sees us. 
Okay, again, that may not be the way man sees it, but remember back to the beginning of the passage, even Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the Creator of the universe, was rejected by man. But God said, oh no, you're priceless. You're of value. You are Remember something. The Bible teaches that God not only saved us and forgave us of our sins, but the Bible says that we are seated with Christ in the heavenlies. We will rule and reign with Christ, the Bible says. If you were here last year when we went through the book of Revelation, you saw the future glory for the saints of God, and it is royalty for all of eternity. So when you leave here tonight, remember that God chose you as if you were the only one and your royalty to Him. A royal bridge builder that can build bridges between men and the Lord Jesus Christ. And then, a holy nation. Again, just reminding us how distinct we need to be. How different we need to be. That we need to look as much as we possibly can and progress to look like Jesus Christ. So that we stand out and so that we are attractive and so that we draw people to Christ. Again, not to ourselves, not to church, but to Christ. He is the cornerstone. He is the living stone. And then I love this, a people of His own. Literally, I love this. In the original language, it means a treasure. Very appropriate for the mind. You are God's treasure. God treasures you. Again, and treats us as if we were the only possession that was in existence. Now, how God does that, I can't answer that. But God doesn't divert any of His attention from you over to me or me over to you. God somehow, because He's God, can give you and I full undivided attention as if we're the only one on the planet at the same time. Because we are a people of His own. And then notice, notice, going back to Hebrews 13, 15, so that you may proclaim the virtues of the One who called you out of darkness into His marvelous light. The primary reason why we need to remind ourselves that we are chosen royalty that is distinct and treasured is so that we can go through our day with the sacrifice of praise, giving praise to God, that is the fruit of our lips, and proclaiming the virtues of God out there into a world that needs to hear how great God is and how good God is. For those of you that are getting on the website, I asked Mike today to do me a favor and put on there two books, and I'll give you them tonight too, that I think can help you. It helped me to understand the virtues or excellencies of God. There's two primary ways to learn about the virtues and excellencies of God. One is to study the attributes of God. The other is to study the names of God. Because God has many names. El Shaddai, El Elyon, El Roy, Jehovah, Adonai, all the names of God, all the attributes of God, like His omniscience, His omnipotence, all of those things. Okay? Two books. Little paperback books. Less than $10 a piece. They're on the website, but I'll also give them to you tonight. The first and the best book I've ever read on the attributes of God is called The Knowledge of the Holy. The Knowledge of the Holy by A.W. Tozer. A period, W period, Tozer. T-O-Z-E-R. Little paperback book. You can get it at Amazon for under 10 bucks. It's on the website. And then the best book I've ever read on the names of God is called My Father's Names. My Father's Names by Elmer Towns. E-L, yeah, Elmer Fudd, Elmer Towns. Okay. <laughs> and I can say that because Dr. Towns was one of my Bible professors. And he's a great guy, and it's a good book. As you and I learn about the names of God, and we learn about the attributes of God, we are more able to proclaim the virtues and excellencies of God, because the more we know God and about God, the more we can tell people really how great He is. Do you know how great God is? He's Jehovah Ra. He's the healer. And he, I mean, just so many things as you and I study. So again, didn't want to take time to navigate all the attributes and names of God in the mind this time. 
but let you do maybe some reading on your own. Again, little paperback books that really, if you sunk your teeth into it, you probably could get through both of them in a, in a couple weeks. And good reading. Good reading. Okay? So anyway, that's a little commercial for those guys tonight. Just one other thing, and then I'm going to stop here for a, a couple minutes. Um, so then notice he goes on to just remind us in verse 10 to celebrate each day the privilege of knowing that we are God's people. He said, you once were not a people, but now you are God's people. You were shown no mercy, but now you have received mercy. So celebrate the privilege. Get up every day and say, thank you, God, that I know you, that I that you chose me, that I'm royalty to you, that I'm a treasure to you. And now I'm going to seek to not only commune with you, but to become more and more like you so that I can become a fisher of men and make disciples and be that priestly bridge builder and bring other people to you and live a life so attractive that there will be some of those people in this world who are looking for people out there either in the church or in the marketplace or in, our, in their home who can make a difference in their life. In fact, that's one of the reasons why, let me just say this, like the first couple of verses we talked about tonight, talk about the church, but then you'll notice like beginning in verse 13 of chapter 2, he talks about human government and how we relate to human government, and then he talks about in verse 18, slaves and masters, and I'm not going to get way off on that, but please understand, when you read about slavery in the Bible, it's not the same as thinking that the only context we have for slavery is slavery around the Civil War era in America. That's not the same kind of slavery. And I'm not saying that God is for slavery. I'm just saying, don't look at biblical slavery and that concept of servanthood and all of that through the context of what we know slavery to be like in America and how wrong that was. Totally different. All right. I'm not saying God was for it either. But all I'm saying is that the same principles that he was giving to slaves and even to masters back then are really principles that you can I, and I can apply to even the employee-employer relationship today. So he's saying, whether you're in the church, whether you're in the marketplace relating to human government, or whether you're relating to being out there in the workforce and the business force, and whether you're an employer or an employee, or then he goes into chapter 3 and he starts talking to wives and husbands and navigating the home life. He says, I don't care where, what institution you're in, you can make a difference for me as long as you and I continue to come to him and seek that communion and fellowship with him and then allow that time with him to make us look more like him so that we can go into the world and make disciples. Again, the call of discipleship is to be with him. The goals of discipleship is to look like him and then to make disciples. Comments, questions? Yes, Mary Alice. I understand what the word chosen means here in verse 9. He chose us because we chose him first. It's not like we're being put up against the wall and God is saying, You're a Christian, you're not. You're a Christian, you're going to heaven. You're no. Not, right? It's because we chose him first. So if you think that can very easily be taken out of context. Well, no, he chose us first. He pursued us. He initiated it. Like John said, we love him because he first loved us. For instance, like for you and I in this room, we didn't even know God existed 2,000 years ago because we weren't even born yet. But Jesus Christ knew we were coming one day. And even when he sacrificed himself on the cross, he had Mary Alice and he had Jeff on his mind. So he, he set his love upon us. He chose us. Now, the thing is, that not everybody accepts that choice. Not everybody responds favorably to God reaching out his hand and saying, I want you on my team, if you will. I know that's maybe a terrible way to illustrate it. And that's the point. We, we have the choice. God doesn't choose some here and some there, but God actually wants all to come to him. And he's reaching out to all, you see the important thing on the other side of it is, once we've accepted that invitation from him, that we understand he chose us. He chose us. 
Because a lot of times we don't think we're worth anything. We don't think we're of any value. You know, people today have such terrible self-worth and self-esteem. And I try to point them to these scriptures and go, don't you realize that God chose you? Don't you realize your royalty? This is what the Bible teaches. Hold your head up high. God values you. You are a prince and princess of God. And God chose you even before you were born. He wanted a relationship with you even before you knew you were going to exist. So that's pretty cool. But yeah, not everybody accepts that, that invitation. Now, I, I will say this. There are people out there that disagree with that viewpoint. Okay? But they're wrong. They can be wrong if they want to be. Exactly. Exactly. That's a great way to put it. God chose everybody, not everybody. That's the way I like to look at it. Yeah. Because the Bible clearly teaches God is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance through Jesus Christ. The Bible clearly teaches God so loved the world. And that word world is cosmos. And there's no other way to get around it in biblical interpretation but to say the whole world. And that's why, when again, when people say, oh, you're being so exclusive as a Christian because you're saying that salvation is only through Jesus Christ, that's not exclusive. The only way it would be exclusive is to say salvation is only through Jesus Christ and only people who live in India can come to Christ. No, that would be exclusive. But the Bible clearly teaches, and we read this back in Revelation last year, that the Bible says that in heaven there will be people from every tribe, every nation, every tongue, Every place on this planet, there will be people represented in heaven. That's not exclusive, folks. That is a God who loves the whole world and who is reaching out to the whole world and who is just looking for people in the world just to take a step and just open their hearts up to him and he'll make sure that they get the truth in order for them to be saved. That's my stance, and I'm sticking to it. That's why in the book of Acts, when this Ethiopian wanted to know Jesus Christ, what did God do in Acts chapter 8? says, Philip, Philip, you need to be a bridge builder. You need to take your chariot and you need to head in that direction and I'm going to make sure that your chariot and his chariot crash into each other at just the right time so that you two can get linked up because he has a question about how to come to God and you've got the answer, okay? So Philip, here you go. Philip was obedient. Here comes, they meet. He meets up with the Ethiopian and he says, hey, do you understand what you read? Because he saw that he was reading an Old Testament scroll. And the Ethiopian says, I don't know what I'm reading. I'm reading in this passage of Isaiah about the Messiah. And who is it? I don't know. I need somebody to help me. And Philip comes up into the chariot with the Ethiopian and leads him to Jesus Christ. And after he leads him to Christ, he's baptized in the water. And he knows Christ. Because Listen. If God knows you're at all interested in a relationship with Him, He will make sure that He gets somebody to you to tell you how you can have a relationship with Him. I just believe our God's that big. He's not going to leave anybody behind. Nobody's going to get to eternity someday and say, God, I didn't have, I wanted a relationship with you. God wants a relationship with us as human beings more than we do. If there's anybody out there on the planet that God knows has any kind of interest in a relationship with Him, God will make sure He gets a relationship with Him. There's not going to be anybody that's in eternity who goes, well, God, I, I want a relationship with you, and you just didn't give me a chance. My Bible, to me, teaches just the opposite. Again, because this is the kind of God that the Bible talks about. Good stuff. And that's why we should proclaim the virtues and the greatness and the goodness of God out there, because this is the kind of God that we have. Now, notice this. I'll just stop here in just a moment. Notice then, though, why it's... <laughs> Although, if you say more by... No, I won't say that. Boy, this, this hour goes by so quickly. That's why, though, it is important to go back to this whole idea of as we come to Him, that we become more like Him. Because it's through that becoming more like Jesus Christ that our life is going to really stand out. Because notice what He says then in verse 11. Dear friends, I urge you as foreigners and exiles... Remember, we're just passing through. This isn't our permanent home. Keep away from fleshly desires that do battle against the soul and maintain good conduct among the non-Christians so that though they now malign you as wrongdoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God when He appears. You see, it is our conduct that's going to make... It's not necessarily what we say. It's how we navigate life. And it's, it's our attitude that's going to be huge. And he says, there's a battle though. 
Because when we accept Christ as our Savior, guess what? The old nature is not removed. The old nature is dethroned. And when we accept Christ as our Savior, God breaks the power of sin in our lives so that we don't have to sin, so that we're no longer a slave to sin. But that doesn't mean the old nature is not there to pull us in, in an opposite direction from God. And so he's saying, keep pulling yourself away from being pulled away from God. Keep going in this direction. You know, fill your life up with God and you won't have time to fill your life up with things that's going to pull you away from God. Because within every human being, we have this vacuum problem. Human beings hate vacuum in their life. And so if there's a vacuum of any kind in our life, we're going to fill it up with something. And so God is saying, fill your life up with me. And then you won't have any room to fill your life up with things that can tend to pull you away from me so that as these people who don't know me observe your life, they may see a difference in your life. That's why he goes on then to talk about human government in chapter 2, verse 13 and on and on about how we should live and how we should behave ourselves. Because notice in verse 15, for God wants you to silence the ignorance of foolish people by doing good. That, that it might get to the point where the only way they can say anything bad about you is to make something up. But don't give them ammunition. You know, God is saying, don't give those, those people who don't know me ammunition. Try to live in such a way that, that they can see a difference. Now again, again, God understands we can't be perfect. But if we're making progress, if we're pressing towards the mark, if we're a little bit more like Jesus Christ than we were you know, today than we were yesterday, people will begin to see that difference. And over time, over time, our lives can make a tremendous impact. Notice verse 16. Live as free people because Jesus Christ has set us free. And if you're free, then you're free indeed. But people get this misconception in Christianity that freedom means I can do whatever I want to do. No. Do not use your freedom as a pretext, as a veil, as a cover-up for evil. But as God's slaves, honor all people, love the family of believers, fear God and honor the king. In other words, freedom in the biblical context means freedom to live as we should, not as we please. It means freedom to do as we ought, not as we like. It's like even, you know, yeah, are, do we live in the land of the free in America? Yeah, but that doesn't mean I can just go out and do whatever I want to. I'm free, but I not only have privileges as being a, a citizens of America, I have responsibilities as citizens of America. Because freedom comes with both. And that's what he's trying to share with us here. Listen, folks, celebrate the privilege. As I said earlier, we all need to celebrate the privilege of being one of God's children and being associated with God. But we also need to accept the responsibility that that brings as well. And so often we like the privilege, but we don't like the responsibility. And the responsibility is to reflect Jesus Christ in the world in which we live. So that's why, like then, verse 18, Slaves, be subject to your masters with all reverence, not only to those who are good and gentle, but also to those who are perverse. For this finds God's favor. If because of conscience towards God, someone endures hardships and suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if you sin and are mistreated and endure it? If you do good and suffer and so endure this, this finds favor with God. And then we're going to start here next week. He begins to use Jesus Christ as an example. Because remember, he's writing to a group of people who are suffering unjustly. They haven't done anything wrong except name the name of Christ. And because of that, they're being tortured. They're being persecuted. They're, they're losing material possessions and all of that. But he says, hey, but you're doing it for the sake of Christ. And God is going to bless you for it. And God is going to see you through it. And don't forget that Jesus Christ Himself suffered unjustly. Did Jesus Christ deserve all that He got? No. But He went through it so that others could be blessed and impacted by the life and death that He lived. And so God is simply calling us to follow. That's what a disciple is, a follower. And God is saying, a disciple's not above His teacher. If Jesus Himself, our Teacher, our Master, our Savior, our Lord went through it, then we're going to have to be called to go through it too. And so there are going to be times in my life where God calls me to go through something uncomfortable personally for me, but it may be to touch somebody else's life. It may not even have anything to do with me. 
That's why sometimes, you know, I can go through something and start whining, wah, 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 and God goes, Jeff, I'm not allowing you to go through that for you, but I want to use you to touch somebody else. Oh, okay, thanks for reminding me about that. And then I feel like about the small, you know, because it's all about me, you know, and I'm having my pity party and nobody's coming, and... And, and that's the way it is, and God is reminding me of that. And, and we all know that. I've shared with you before. There have been times where I've been in hospitals as a pastor with people. And people even say, Jeff, I know why I'm here. I'm here because I was able to witness to a doctor or a nurse or somebody that, that helped me out here or, or one of my fellow patients in the bed next that couldn't get away from me. Or I don't know. <laughs> or I'll go in thinking, I'm the pastor. I'm supposed to encourage them. And I leave there going, oh my goodness, I feel so ashamed because this whole day I've been grumpy and complaining and griping and I'm going into this hospital room with this person and man, they've just got the joy of the Lord flowing through them and they got a smile on their face and I leave there going, what am I doing? And God has used that person to impact my life. Just, it's incredible what God can do if we let him, if we allow him as that living stone to just let the potter just mold the clay and put the brick where it needs to be, where it can bring the most honor and glory to him. Okay, I see a hand, and then we'll close in prayer. Yes? And Brooke said something about mercy. And I, in my prayer, I knew grace and mercy all the time. And it wasn't until the last Bible study that I really understood what grace meant. So I'm going to just define mercy. That's good. I like that. It's a good definition. No, seriously. Mercy, yeah. Mercy is receiving from God what I don't deserve. That's mercy. Receiving from God what I don't deserve. Yeah, good stuff. Good stuff. Folks, you're incredible. I... uh, I use a cross between what I, and the way I explain it is, it's a cross between the New International Version, the NIV, which most people use at Cornerstone, and the NASB, the New American Standard. It's called the Net Bible. And the reason it's called the Net Bible, it's the first Bible that's ever been done, in a sense, on the Internet, which you actually can even take the whole Bible and have access to on the Internet. And the reason it was on the Internet, it was actually on the Internet before they put it in book form like this, It was on the internet for several years, getting comments and suggestions by people just like you and me about how to compile it, how to make it better before they actually put it in this form. So that's why they call it the, it's really the short for the internet Bible. Uh, It's called the net Bible. And if you would like more information about that, just go to www.bible.org. Is that one of the websites that we have on the mind? It's going to be. Okay. If you go to www.bible.org, is also a great resource for Bible study and whatnot. And if you go to Bible.org, you will see on the left-hand column, they will have, it's called the Net Bible. You can buy these, I think, paperback or then, of course, leather. Uh, or you can, just, you can just have access to it on the Internet uh, to do study with or whatever. But it is a cross between the NIV and the New American Standard. Yeah, you're welcome. Let's pray. Guys, you're terrific. Father, we thank you so much again for this time in your word tonight. Just take us all home safely, and we pray, Lord, you just bring us all back again next Tuesday, excited once again to dive into your word. Lord, give us some real treasure even this coming week as we mine uh, your word for some truth and and nuggets of gold as well, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Guys, have a great week. I'll see you next Tuesday.